Before we begin to uh, tonight's lesson, I want to add another name that uh, I would like you to keep in your prayers. Many of you will know the name Joe Pendergrass. This is uh, Gary Pendergrass's father. Gary, of course, is married to Krista, who, of course, is Norman and Janice's daughter. Okay, we're getting the connection there. Uh, But I just found out today that uh, Joe, this is Gary's father, uh, had some surgery in Plano about a week and a half ago, came home to Greenville, had some complications, and he is now in ICU uh, in Greenville on a ventilator. Uh, So uh, those of you that know Gary and Krista know, you know, what they have been struggling with with Janice. They recently had to move her into an Alzheimer uh, unit. And then, of course, there are continued struggles with Will uh, and his situation. So uh, they are undergoing quite a bit of uh, stress and different things. So I would ask that you keep them and, of course, Gary's mother, Ann, in your prayers as well. Several years ago, there was a movie uh, out and and the name of the movie was John Q. And it uh, starred Denzel Washington. And in this movie, uh, Denzel Washington is the father of a little boy who is dying and desperately needs a heart transplant. And so because of insurance red tape and hospital red tape and all these different things, it becomes apparent that the little boy is not going to get the heart transplant in time. And so Denzel Washington is, or his character at least, is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do. And so essentially what he does is, is he goes into the hospital and holds the entire emergency room at gunpoint and holds them hostage and demands that the hospital come up with a heart and that his son gets a heart transplant. And so there's negotiations that go on for, you know, an extended period of time. And, you know, eventually it comes to the point where it does not look like anything is going to be able to happen. And so Denzel Washington puts the gun to his head. Because the surgeon who can perform the surgery is there. He puts the gun to his head and he said, well, then I am going to shoot myself. And then you can take my heart and give it to my son. Anyway, it all ends up working out in, in, in the end, and that's not what happens. But, but we think to ourselves, wow, that is, that, is, that is extreme measures, isn't it? I mean, that's a little out there. Or do we really think that? Those of us that are parents can feel like that character felt. Those of us who are, who are parents may think to ourselves, that is so extreme, I would never do anything like that. But what if you were in that situation? What might you do in order to save your child? Now for several weeks we've been looking at these encounters that Jesus has had with certain individuals. We started with Nicodemus and then we spent two weeks in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And tonight we're going to look at also in John chapter 4, a man whose son is sick and dying. Beginning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 43 it says, After the two days, remember the two days that he stayed in Samaria. After the two days, he left for Galilee. 
Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet was, has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. You may go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time that his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This is the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. What a tremendous encounter. You can, you can feel the emotion, can you not? As the father comes to Jesus, begging him to come with him so that he can heal his son. This man's faith is recorded for us, I think, to help on our journey, his relationship with Jesus. The stages we witness here are stages, I believe, in our relationship with Jesus as well, or in our faith. As we work through our life. Now, first of all, we need to kind of get a little geographic sense of what's going on. Go ahead, Jace. You remember that when we started way back, you know, in chapter four, that Jesus was down here, not in the baptistry, but he was down here in Judea. Okay. He was down here in Judea and he was going to Galilee. And you remember that's when it said that Jesus had, Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. And we talked the last two weeks that that was generally not the case. That most Jews would either, either cross the Jordan River way down here and go this way and then enter Galilee. Or they would come over here and hop a boat and go that way. But most Jews would not go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. But it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So now Jesus has come through Samaria and he is here in Cana. Remember, that's where he turned the water to wine, the first miracle. A next door neighbor to Nazareth, where his hometown was, where he was from. Not where he was born. For those of you that remember Christmas, but that's beside the point. All right. Uh, And so the man whose son was sick was from Capernaum. This is up here on the Sea of Galilee. From what I understand, that distance is about 17 miles, 17, 18 miles. Doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're walking on foot over, you know, that, that's a long way. It appeared to be more than a day's journey uh, in the story that we have. So I wanted you to just kind of see how far the man had come. I don't know how word got from Cana all the way up to Capernaum that Jesus was in town. 
But word had gotten there. Maybe it had spread all the way from Samaria as Jesus began to make his way up there. But in any case, the man comes from Capernaum and he goes to Cana to find Jesus. So the first stage in the relationship that we see or the faith that we see in this man is what we call crisis faith. And we've talked about this a little bit before. You know, when we look at the two previous encounters that we've studied in this series, Nicodemus came to Jesus asking a religious question. He had some religious questions that he wanted Jesus to ask. Are you from God? We believe you're from God. but this And, and so he, he came specifically to ask this question, these questions. The woman at the well came into her relationship with Jesus by accident. At least that's how she would have perceived it. She remembers going to the well in the middle of the day. She doesn't expect anybody to be there. And lo and behold, there's this Jewish man and he asked her for water. Now, I don't think it was accident. I think that was the very reason Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. But from her point of view, she would have seen it as a total accident. She had no reason to want to talk to Jesus. You can see how she got nervous in the conversation and at times tried to cut it off. But what we see here is a man who is coming to Jesus out of desperation. He is in the middle of a crisis, a strong personal crisis. His son was dying. We have seen this kind of relationship Before, or we will see, or we know about. The Canaanite woman who came and begged Jesus about her daughter. The one who said, don't the dogs at least get the scraps off the floor? Jairus comes and he wants his daughter to be healed as well. There is the nobleman or the centurion's servant. As the centurion comes and wants his servant. And then we have that sending of Mary and Martha. At the end of John, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, your friend Lazarus is dying. Now, I, you know, Jesus was his friend, but Mary and Martha weren't so much concerned about that as the fact that their brother was dying. And if reminding Jesus that Lazarus was his friend could get him there sooner, they weren't too, you know, whatever to pull that card. If they needed to. And so we see people who begin their faith with Jesus. Now Mary and Martha didn't begin their faith that way. They already, they already had faith. But who come to Jesus and come for a relationship in the middle of a crisis. The woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And just touches the hem of his garden garment. We've seen it perhaps in our own lives. Or lives of people we know. Illness drives someone to faith. Personal tragedy drives someone to faith. Family turmoil drives someone to faith or relationship with God. Now there are some who might consider this type of faith or relationship to be shallow and ineffectual. But to Jesus, it was a starting point. It was a starting point. 
Notice Jesus' response to the man. I think this is really interesting. The man comes in verse 47 and begs him to come and heal his son who is close to death. And Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. I love the next verse. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. He says, Jesus, my son is dying. Please come and heal my son. All you people want is miraculous signs. Jesus, please come help my son. You think he's a little focused? My guess is he didn't even hear what Jesus said. And if he did, he certainly probably didn't understand what Jesus was saying about the miraculous signs or things like that. And we look at that, we look at Jesus' reaction and we might think that's a little harsh. Kind of like what he said to the Canaanite woman about, you know, we don't give the food to the dogs. But Jesus was not specifically, I don't think, talking to this man. He was not answering the physical question. Remember all along, especially in the book of John, Jesus is on one level and everybody else seems to be on another level. Jesus is on a spiritual level again. He's talking about how that it shouldn't, it shouldn't take miraculous signs to create faith. It shouldn't, you know, they ought to be able to believe because of their, their study of the scripture, because of uh, the other things that Jesus has done uh, and along this line. And the man, he's not thinking about any of that. All he's thinking about is my son is dying. I don't want a religious treatise. I don't want some sermon. I don't want. Can you relate? If it was your child, would you really want somebody to start in on a sermon? But the sermon really wasn't for that man, I don't think. It was for the other people who were listening and who were around. While Jesus was concerned with the physical situation, his primary concern was the spiritual, seeking and saving the lost. Christ's faith as a starting point is acceptable and legitimate. Jesus never turned people away who were in the middle of crisis. I remember, you remember, you remember Norman. Norman used to say, find me anywhere in the scripture where Jesus turned away and down and out sinner. Or somebody who was just absolutely down and out on their luck. Jesus didn't do that. They would come to him. And their faith may be in nothing more than a rumor that they had heard from somebody else. You know, there's a guy coming here from Jerusalem who I've heard can heal people. Well, I'm going to go see if he can heal my son. We don't know if this man had any personal faith in Jesus at this time. He knew something. He knew enough to come to him. And we may have times in our lives when we come to Jesus or come to God simply because we are in a crisis. We may know people who come to church, who come to worship simply because they are in the middle of a crisis and they don't know where else to go. And what should our attitude be? Ah, you don't have any real faith. You know, you're not really here for the right reason. 
You're just here because you want this to get better, that to get better. Isn't that the reason we all come to Jesus? It's because we need to get better. And we're in the midst of a crisis. It may not be a health situation. But we all come to Jesus in the middle of a spiritual crisis. If we weren't in the middle of a spiritual crisis, there would be no reason to come to Jesus at all. And so we see this crisis faith. Now, it's a good place to start, but it cannot be the foundation of our faith. It cannot be what we totally rest our faith or our relationship on Jesus on is this crisis type. Why not? Well, first of all, and we've seen it before, when the crisis is over, I no longer need Jesus. God, if you help me get over this cancer, you will help my, my friend get over this illness, or you will help my child, I promise that I will be faithful and I will serve you and I will do all these different things. And then, you know, that happens and they forget. We forget, perhaps. And we don't hold that relationship because it's built on crisis. It can start at crisis, but it can't be built on that crisis faith. Or... If things don't turn out like we wanted them to. But say to God and we come to him and we come to Jesus and we say, oh, I want to follow you. I want to serve you and I want you to make my baby better. And the baby dies. If our faith is simply built on that crisis. We won't make it. We won't make it. We've mentioned several times in the last few weeks about that statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. This is going to be one. When I die, you're going to remember this maybe more than anything else. But, you know, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, this is your last chance. Bow down. Or I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our God will Deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. What? Doesn't that first part sound so confident? Our God will deliver us. You think they believed it? I think they believed it. I think they wholeheartedly believed that God was going to deliver them from the fire. But they also understood that he might not. That he might not. God's ways are higher than our ways. His understanding is greater than our understanding. I don't know why he works in some situations and doesn't appear to work in other situations. And why things work out for some people and don't for other people. But if our faith is based in and our relationship is based in that crisis. And then things don't turn out like we wanted. We're in terrible trouble. We're on very shaky ground. Paul says, three times I prayed to God that this thorn in my side would be taken away. And you know what God said all three times? No, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. If Paul's faith was based in 
God delivering us from every crisis and everything that went wrong in our lives. If Paul's faith was based in that, he would have given up. But his faith was deeper than that. It went stronger or or deeper than a crisis faith. Secondly, we see from a crisis faith to a confident faith. His faith progressed from crisis to confidence. This is, and uh, you know, I I say this a lot. I think this is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. Verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Nope. Not me. I am handcuffing, tying, kidnapping. I'm doing whatever it takes to bring Jesus with me. How many of you have ever been brushed off before? You know, somebody, you know, they just said something to get rid of you. That's kind of what I would have thought maybe was going on. This man, I believe at this point, has incredible faith. I don't know where it came from. This brief time that he had with Jesus was enough to convince him that, all right, I'm going to go home. I'm going to leave you here. Remember, this was, an, a, this was a royal official. You don't think he had some clout? You don't think in some way, either by hook or crook, as they used to say, my mom used to say, I don't know what that means, but you know, that he could have forced Jesus to come with him? Yeah. But you know, he understood something that some of the other disciples didn't understand. That Mary and Martha didn't even understand. You remember when Mary and Martha, when when Jesus finally, after four days, gets to Mary and Martha, you remember what both of them say the first time they see him? If you had been here, mother would not have died. I wonder if Jesus didn't want to say, if I'd been here, I could have healed him from where I was if I wanted to. But see, they thought, ah, he wasn't here, it's over. He didn't make it in time. But this man took Jesus at his word and left him and began to travel home. How many lives have we seen destroyed? Because people simply would not take Jesus at his word. Would not take God at his word. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. In fact, the serpent, the serpent helps them out a little bit. Eve. Did God really tell you not to eat of the fruit of that tree? He said, yeah. He, he told us that. Eve didn't take God at his word. Disaster. Abraham, I'm going to bless you with a child. I'm going to bless you with a child. Your descendants are going to be as many as the stars and the sand and the sea and all that. I'm going to bless you. Abraham and Sarah didn't take God at his word. 
And so they decided to take matters in their own hands. And so we have Hagar and we have Ishmael and we have world turmoil ever since that will never pass away. Moses, Moses didn't take God at his word. Moses, speak to the rock and water will come forth. Moses said, in my mind, Moses said, well, last time he told me to strike the rock. And that seems a little more plausible. (laughs) Speaking to the rock, I'm not too sure. So I think I'll just strike the rock. And because of that, he did not and was not able to enter into the promised land. And then we have one who was so close. Naaman. You remember he had leprosy and he goes to the prophet and the prophet doesn't even come out. The prophet just sends his servant and says, the, the, the prophet says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed of your leprosy. Naaman, not a happy camper. Talk about thinking you'd gotten the brush off. Uh, that's exactly what he thought. He'd And he was bound and determined he was not going to dip in that Jordan River. And he was going to go home and he was not going to take God at his word. And the servant said, sir, sir, what could it hurt? I mean, really, what could it hurt? Just go dip in the river. I'm sure he didn't say it quite like that. He was a servant. But he was close. Not that he necessarily took God at his word, but the servant convinced him to take God at his word, at least enough to go dip in the Jordan River seven times and he was healed of his leprosy. Faith in a relationship involves trust. You know, I think we have a hard time trusting in our world, in our society. Trust have been, has been destroyed by those we have trusted the most. Politicians, religious leaders, perhaps family leaders. But trust is either built on a relationship or out of desperation. On January 15, 2009, flight 1549 left LaGuardia Airport in New York and was headed to Charlotte, North Carolina. Shortly after takeoff, they ran into birds and lost both their engines. Some of you know the story, know exactly where I'm going with this. And all of a sudden, there were 150 passengers, five crew members, 150 passengers, who had to place their absolute trust in somebody they knew nothing about. Not a person on that plane, aside from the crew, Knew who Captain Chesley Sullenberger was. Nobody knew who he was. My guess is nobody had checked out his credentials when they got on the plane. Have you ever done that when you got on a plane? Knocked on the, knocked on the cockpit door? Could I see your uh, pilot's license, please? <laughs> I'd like to, you know, kind of check you out. Run a background check. We don't do that. They didn't do that. They had no idea who the captain was. And now their lives were in his hands. Out of desperation. Now the crew, some of them may have flown with him before. 
Some of them may have felt good. You know, if I'm going to be in a situation like this, this is the captain I want flying the plane. And of course, you all know he landed the plane on the Hudson River. And all 155 souls aboard were saved. They had no relationship with him. But in the middle of a crisis, they developed one. You see, it's been 10 years. I saw something not too long ago about the 10-year anniversary and how many of those passengers have kept up with him and how they meet together from time to time and write cards and make phone calls and visit one another. Out of that desperation, trust came. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And then he had to spend the night. See, he couldn't get home that night. He had to spend the night. Don't you imagine that that was one restless night? When he'd left his son, he was on the verge of dying. Jesus said he's going to be all right. But now I've got to spend the night wondering. And so then the next day we see what happens. And thirdly, that leads to a confirmed faith. He rose at daybreak, started home, and he was met by his servant. And he was given the news of his son's healing. And here we find faith or a relationship confirmed as we would always want it. And this is the storybook ending, isn't it? He comes to Jesus. He wants his son healed. And Jesus says, your son is, is healed. Go on your way. And sure enough, that's the storybook ending. That's the way we want all of our prayers answered. But we've been around long enough that we know it does not always end up that way. Because God is God and his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Sometimes our faith is confirmed in a different way. It may be confirmed by strength and peace that God grants us in the times of crisis. It may be confirmed in the comfort and encouragement that he provides for us. Maybe even through others. But ultimately, it will be confirmed in the promise that Jesus came to ultimately fulfill. And that he tells us about in John 14 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me. That where I am, you may be also. God has not promised that he is going to fix everything in our lives. He has promised he'd be with us. He has promised he would be with us through the valley, as we talked about this morning. He has promised to give us strength. He has promised to give us courage. He has promised to give us encouragement. And he has promised us that in the end, what he has promised far outweighs even the worst thing that can happen to us here. I, again... This is, I don't know that I could have done what this man did. I don't know that I could have taken Jesus at his word and left. But isn't that what God wants from us? 
take him at his word. Now, see, you and I, we have a little advantage over the man. See, what strikes me the most is this man, from what I understand and what I see, this man did not know Jesus well. And yet he took Jesus at his word. You and I know him. We should. You and I should have experience with him. And therefore, it ought to be easy to take Jesus at his word. If you're here this evening, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.